We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers other merch just uh, visit our patreon we are womance on patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash womance we would be very proud to call you one of our patrons (sighs) (sighs) i'm morgan and i'm isabeau and this is Womance, a podcast about romance novels, about statuary, about tales and the interesting places you can put them, about knots, <laughs> about believing yourself to be worthy and deserving of love, about working in academia but not in a university. About finding the right balance between communication and overshare. About polyamory. About navigating those fierce emotions. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we are continuing on Monster March with our final installment, Deceived by the Gargoyle. By Lillian Lark. Yep. Morgan, would you like to read the back of the book? You know, Isabeau, sometimes I feel like we're on a date and I'm waiting for you to ask me a question. (laughs) (laughs) And take an interest in me and what I have to bring to the table. Morgan, I'm always interested in what you have to bring to this table. This makes me think you are the alpha. That. Because I'm just sitting here. I think we're here. co-alphas. We're also co-omegas, you know? Like, I don't think we need to put labels on this, man. We're co-megas. We're co-megas! <laughs> what even is an omega? I don't know. I don't care. I know, I know what an alpha and a beta is. Is an omega, like, the middle child? Yeah, but, like, the nicer, more charming one in between. I think we had an omega in this book. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, well, let's talk. Okay, I will now read the back of the book. Okay. Uh, and strap in, because this is not from a publishing house, so it's as verbose as it wants to be. Strap in being key. We've got some search engine optimization going on, okay? So we're going to have some keywords, some hits. Keep an ear out. A curvy librarian looking to start a family, a clan of gargoyles, and the deception that starts it all. My family has always found me lacking, from the way I dress, how I look, to the type of magic I have. My family name is full of pomp and prestige. 
and I want nothing to do with it. I'm a witch that knows how to set a goal, and I have one in mind. I want a real family. Dating is a travesty. All the suitors I meet are looking for a connection to the family name I left behind. I need help. Enter the matchmaker. It seems too good to be true that I can give her the list of traits I want in a partner and have my deepest desire answered, but I'm out of options. Love comes along in the most unexpected ways. From the very first moment I meet Elliot Bramblewick, I have hope, but he's tricky. I'm not expecting him to be hiding two other mates, mates who are as alarmed and intrigued by my presence as I am by theirs. The imagery is just like her holding out the back of her hand so they can sniff it. He thinks I'm a perfect fit for them, but can I open my heart and discard my list long enough to see if this is the family I'm looking for? None of my lists and plans prepared me for being courted by three gargoyles. Deceived by the gargoyles is a standalone monster romance in the same world as Stalked by the Kraken with multiple love interests who are in relationships with each other. There will be no choosing among the love interests. Content warning, this book includes breeding, knots, size difference, lying, and deception within an open relationship. I think open kind of feels like a misnomer there because it's not like their relationship is open. They're just a polyamorous triad turned quad. You know, I wonder if that isn't... I think we read a lot more about open relationships in the media. Like, we hear a lot about it a lot more about that than polyamory like an open relationship sounds like a little might be more approachable to some people who haven't watched real sex documentaries from a young age so i think like you can wrap your head around an open relationship but like an exclusive loving quad yeah the idea of being in love like oh my god the bachelor most recently (laughs) in the fantasy suites said i love you to all three finalists and one of them was like i don't believe you that seems fucked up i don't want to have sex with you knowing that you had sex with the other two women and he was like oh well that's pretty messed up because like you came here and this is magical for me and he just had like the worst possible reaction like he that seems right like he almost had a leg to stand on and then he just like Mm -hmm. kicked out his own knee It was crazy. That seems like something The Bachelor would do. It was so funny because when you said The Bachelor, I immediately, like, in my mind, transposed it to The Bachelorette and, like, a woman saying to three men, I'm in love with all of you. I'm like, yeah, that's, like, we reserve that storyline for cheesy teen movies. But I think it's, like, really true. Like, this question of, like, can you be in love with more than one person at a time? I'm like, yes, absolutely. Your heart has many chambers. Like, But that's a a deeply – that remains a very controversial – worldview that you can be in romantic love with more than one person at a time it does and I think that's too bad like I just think that's too bad and so I think when you say open relationship people think about like being in love with one person but having sex with other people you know right but like your heart isn't engaged right exactly in the same way and i think maybe that's what's going on here trying to communicate meet people where they're at you know i guess and but surprising them along the way i mean like misnomer but there is that that thing that says there will be no choosing between the love interests that's true so i think important caveat well, this is not our first polyamorous romance, humble brag. Nope. <laughs> um, Behind Closed Doors by Jude Luce 
which remains critically underestimated as an incredible text. If you haven't read it yet, please do so. Yeah. And go back and listen to that episode because we talk a lot about the book, The Ethical Slut. And (laughs) I I still think that book uh, is helpful to people who even aren't, could be helpful to you even if you aren't pursuing a polyamorous lifestyle or even an open relationship, right? I think it gives you a lot of permission to feel the way you want to feel. And I think like a lot of the the threads that were laid out, like you can't be, it's unfair to expect one person to be everything to you. And that's picked up quite literally in this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grace the Witch has a really extensive list of traits that she wants in a partner. And she delivers it to this matchmaking bathhouse. Our first gargoyle, Elliot, sees it and he says, oh, me and my two mates, we actually fulfill every item on the list. But it takes all three of us to be the full house. (laughs) To be a full package, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's kind of, I I don't know. I think that's like a nice, I I think that this is a book that, um, covers a lot of the same ground as far as like what is polyamory how does polyamory work and what why does it matter because I think like a lot of like I Louis Thoreau a lot of his documentaries got put on HBO Max and I was like oh my god I can't wait to revisit this 2002 time capsule and indeed it is but there's an episode (laughs) where he goes to Portland Oregon naturally um to meet people who are polyamorous and there's this experience of the documentary that it's just people love Louis Thoreau, but he's not particularly invested in like empathy. Like I think he'll accidentally be empathetic, but he's never accidentally empathetic in the <laughs> this particular excursion. It's a lot about putting our own assumptions of like, well, of course they're jealous. Like, of course mm-hmm. this isn't work, and that means of course this is a bad situation. Whereas I think, and kind of looking at them like animals in a zoo, whereas I think these like romance novels that deal with polyamory are very much like, of course they get jealous too. Here's how they actually confront it, right? And this is like a much more empathetic depiction. For sure. Like this is how loving adults manage difficult emotions in relation. Which is to say, if you haven't read a polyamorous romance novel, don't talk to me about polyamory. I'm not interested. And that goes especially for men with goatees who are practicing polyamory. Just because they're living it, I still don't trust them to know what they're doing. Yeah, I think the thing about men with goatees, or dare I say fedora hats, is that they're not participating or practicing what I would call ethical polyamory because you need to have massively open communication and it's hard to be consistently vulnerable with a number of people all the time like that's not how society socializes us where it's like you know don't give something so special to so many people because like that's just more ammunition for more people to hurt you and this book deals with that in a and I and you said it very nicely in this very empathetic way and I think not only is it empathetic but it's also um highly structured like this like 
there are some ways that this book kind of feels like a, a polyamory handbook. Like, these are the steps that a novice polyamory person would need to take. These are the things that you need to think about. These are the ways that you should look at your own reactions. Um, and I think the fact that this book is exclusively in first person, but switches between all of our leads, also functions as a sort of strange tutorial in like dealing with emotions in a polyamorous yeah. situation. Well, and we're brought to it via the perspective of someone who's new to it in grace. But we said the same thing mm -hmm. about behind closed doors. And I wonder if we're not just saying that because that's something that's so unfamiliar to us. Like, I wonder <laughs> if we had grown up in like some kind of polyamorous cultural situation, if we would read like monogamous romance novels as like a primer on how to have a monogamous relationship. And if so, that's a bummer because <laughs> monogamous romances are all about like, not all about, a lot of them deal in you know violent jealousy and possessiveness and that's all valid and indeed sexy to have as part of your relationship which is a bummer like I'd rather live in the world where it's like jealousy is something that you should be able to identify in yourself and then reason through yeah and reason through with someone who loves you and that it's like negative emotions I think are almost more validated in a lot of romance. Like people are always like, I don't know why I'm in love with him. I wish I wasn't in love with him. Like these positive feelings of like, I want to be near them, right? I want to, uh, I want to kiss them. I want to share my life with them, right? Those are things that people are often resistant to. But then whenever it's a feeling like jealousy or betrayal, they're just like whole chest into it. No, no thinking. And I think the polyamorous romances we've read, all two of them, <laughs> do the reverse. I think that's a really interesting observation about romance because I, I first blush, I think you're right. I, I agree with that. Almost entirely. Um, I'd have to test it out, I guess, to be truly scientific. But <laughs> uh, I think you're right. And I think like one of the strengths of romance is like this wholehearted move into negative emotions and describing them and talking about them is important because in lots of our societies, we don't talk about negative emotions. We feel them, but we're not supposed to feel them. We're socialized mm -hmm. to be like, make that smaller, blah, 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 blah. And it does come out in dangerous and fucked up and violent ways in romance. And then, like, there's a conversation after the fuck up of the big negative emotion. And, like, that's how especially heteronormative romances function with the big negative emotion that does exist. So romance acknowledges negative emotions. But the all-too-polyamorous uh, romances that we've read not only deal with them, but de-escalate the negative emotion so it doesn't rise to a crisis and yeah I think like deal with it in this really healthy way like there are multiple times where Grace our heroine gets really overwhelmed with negative emotion and like has to leave and one of the gargoyles is like take your time but like don't cut us off or take your time but really think about what you're doing like it was wrong to blame other character the way that you did but I understand why you did it 
but we're going to have to talk about it. And I was like, holy shit, is this what it's like to be a healthy adult? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Someone lovingly telling you, hey, I understand why you flipped out. It wasn't good that you did that and what you did was wrong and you'll have to apologize. But right now, go take your space. I'm like, oh, oh, unconditional love? What? Yeah, it was – I mean, part of me, like, as I was reading – as I was reaching the end of the book, I realized how many pages I had left and, like, how many pages I had gone. It's, like, 58 chapters. Yeah, it's a lot. And they're not especially short chapters. But I also think, like, first of all, this book has it all. This book has everything. It's super steamy. It has – Omegaverse references. It also has shifter references. Like if you like shifter romance, there's a lot of that here. Um, it also has polyamory, and like you, we've been talking about, like a real in-depth discussion of like feeling and validation. It also has like, um, <laughs> I I don't want to say a caper, but like an underlying external conflict like two of them right like Mm -hmm. it has a female friendship like a new one and an old one it has like all three main types of guys (laughs) available for your perusal there's the sensitive artist broderick there's the cheeky bad boy elliot and there's the aloof leader in Alistair it's like very boy band everyone's rep- all the flavors are represented in your polyamorous relationship there's like an older couple who comments on your sexuality like it's got like all the fixins, and so I but it's and so part of me is like it's too it's too it's too long and then another part of me is like well it's got everything and then another part of me is like well does it have to have everything couldn't it have like Maybe two less of those things. I I could have honestly, and this is like not shocking, I'm sure, but I could have done with like less sex. I think there was so much sex in this that it became erotica rather than a romance. Um, I don't know. Like, again, I feel like I, I need a page count on that. But like I was there's so much sex. It, it's like a musical of sex. Like they just <laughs> like burst into sex. <laughs> You know, it's like I wasn't expecting it, and then suddenly they're just like having a, a massive amount of sex. It was like they were breaking into song, and like none of it's bad. And I love musicals, so like I was surprised with myself. From like, can we get back to the story or like the feelings? It's like, oh, we're doing another sex scene. Okay, like we just did three of those today, and I'm already tired. But okay, <laughs> you know. What I mean? That is exactly the nature of it. I did not think that there were too many sex scenes. I thought the sex scenes were all like riveting, fascinating. Um, but I thought they were all great. They are. But you're 100% right. They will like have like an intense emotion. It is so much like a musical. It's like they have an intense emotion and then they're like, no sex. Like they burst out into sex is exactly right. Burst into sex. I would say that the storyline I could have done without was her like evil parents and her like evil blind date. Sure. But then there's no caper and no reason for her to move in with them after knowing them for like a dinner. 
and no reason for her to like eventually confess her love you know like so it does serve a purpose but I would rather lose that purpose like I would rather this book be more unhinged Mm -hmm. than have less sex okay and I guess that's the root of why you guys listen to the two of us (laughs) (laughs) yeah like even reflecting on that this is a really tight story like it keeps there there's not a lot of fat here even though one might argue that the sex scenes um one has argued recently uh the sex scenes are a little much but i do feel like i'm gonna be honest like i came to reading monster romances expecting there to be like a lot of steam like a lot of sex why is that? Why did I come to Monster? I mean, we talked about how like possibly detrimental it is to come to like a new subgenre or any book with expectations. But one expectation that I had that has been consistently met throughout this project is these are steamy books. I guess like why have a monster if you're not going to have sex with him? Because that's just Beauty and the Beast. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, nothing slaps like the hits. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> and like every everyone who like retells Beauty and the Beast retells it so that they can like fuck. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> or they're like, he's a high school student with acne scars. They do something kind of limp wristed like that. Yeah. It's absolutely like, and I think like the ghost of the fuck that doesn't happen in a PG Disney movie version of... Beauty and the Beast is satisfied in monster romance always because, like, that's Mm -hmm. kind of what you sign up for. Like, I, too, expected all of these to be steamy. I think this is our steamiest. Yeah. But, yeah, I think the expectation is that, like, it's a space – it's like a space to explore taboo without it ever having to be taboo because, like, most of the monster dicks that we've seen are basically, like, human dicks but bigger – um but like but that's like every romance novel like every he has he has a bigger than average human meaner (laughs) right this one comes in different colors and has a knot so that's modeling (laughs) but you know what i mean i think like it's the taboo of desiring something that is a little bit alien or a little bit out of the norm without ever having to challenge the normality I think, like, I think the taboo is resonating for me. And I and I think it's clear because it's it's not just, like, that there are lots of sex scenes in these books. It's that they're mm-hmm. different than it's, – it's not just, like, human, but gray, you know. Our main characters are, are gargoyles. I don't know if we've mentioned <laughs> that. But honestly, the fact that they're gargoyles seems kind of beside the point. Absolutely like, beside the point. But I would also say that, like, that's kind of true for the Thulu squid monster. Yep. Kind of true for our dragon. Very true for our dragon. Never has sex with her as a dragon. Only has sex with her as a human. Gross. I guess the lich thing doesn't seem beside the point, but that's because the lich thing got all tied up in a bunch of other Mm -hmm. stuff. So also kind of beside the point. And that makes me think about... So one of the reasons I think one of my core memories is seeing this scene from 
Creature from the Black Lagoon, and I posted some clips of it on our Instagram story. But there's a scene where they're in the Black Lagoon. Creature may be there. A woman jumps in and she's swimming in the water, right? And it's this underwater shot of her swimming unawares while this kind of balletic creature from the Black Lagoon is swimming alongside her. And it has tense music in the film, but it's also considered this like highly erotic scene that is kind of shocking because it was... It was post-code, I think. Mm -hmm. And so it feels incredibly erotic because they're very, like, floaty and sinewy. It's not like they're, like, bashing the water with their hands, right? Like, it's very dance-like. And she's unaware, but he, the creature, is hyper-aware of her and becomes desirous of her. And it's kind of a muddled desirousness because it's like, do you want to, like, like, is it a romantic desire? Is it, you know, a sexual desire? Is it a desire for, like, to, con- like, to eat? Like, a hunger? Like, a physical hunger? Like, what is it? But that's kind of what it's like to be a human with any kind of romantic desire. Yep. Like, it always feels really ambiguous and murky. And it also, we're socialized, I think especially as women, to understand sexuality is kind of inherently monstrous. Yes. Something... And dangerous. Dangerous, yeah. Very dangerous. And that requires, like, a true, like, leap. And I think being with a monster is almost, like, literalizing that this creature is super different from you and could hurt you. Do you want to kiss them? <laughs> yeah, do you want Yeah. I think that's true, but I think the the titillation of the fear factor, right? Cuz like that scene in the Black Lagoon also made me think um as you were describing it of that scene in Nosferatu uh when he finally starts feeding on her and the dawn's coming and then she like pulls his head back to keep feeding on her. The titillation of the fear factor at least in Deceived by the Gargoyle and to a large extent, uh, the dragon-bound one is really sublimated by, like, the characterization of these male creatures. Where it's like they go out of their way to show our heroine that they're not dangerous. And they're, like, constantly doing stuff to make themselves, like, wholesome. Mm-hmm. Which... Like, I I don't know why I expected anything different. I guess because I'm so acculturated to see sex as danger and dangerous sex and, like, those things, like, that's the bad boy factor. But, like, almost none of these monsters are actual bad boys. You know what I mean? <laughs> like- yeah. Even the, like... A polytheistic god character we incorporate, right? He's a god of mischief who commits no mischief. Right. And like, as you said in that episode, he's like a defanged Loki, which is a very popular fanfic trope. And I think I was really surprised that there wasn't more of a move to play into the physical danger of human versus monster. Like the dangers are always external. Right? It's this bad guy, or it's this bad clan, or it's this bad fairy. Um, which is like, why have the mon- 
gangster if you're going to like take out his talons. But I think there's something almost more comforting. It's like easy to sink into because as much as we're acculturated to see sex as monstrous, we're also acculturated to like don't judge a book by its cover. Right. Um, Especially with men. Uh, Women, we are – if you are well within your rights to judge us by our covers. And if you're not judging us by our covers, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know, it's like, yeah, absolutely. Women are judged by their covers all the time. Like our bodies are somehow like a signpost of our morality as women. Whereas men were always told not to make assumptions about who they are based on their appearance. And so a monster, right, is the outside is different and frightening but the inside is soft and caring whereas i think like when we talk about romances between humans right the rake looks handsome and charming but is in fact dangerous and going to put your reputation on the line and maybe ruin your life Mm -hmm. and i think this is like the flip side of that and i think that is a, a pretty basic way of making something interesting but still a very legitimate way to make something interesting is to contrast outsides with insides Mm -hmm. i mean it was something it was like the whole base of our conversation about the flame and the flower is that it's so literalized like your external appearance with your internal with your internality and that was striking in that book but i think there's something like easier about making like a trustworthy hero or male character whenever he has a tail and leathery wings. Yeah, because there's so much characterization there. Like, he's constantly trying to make himself smaller, at least in this text and also the other texts that we've read, because he doesn't want to scare Grace. Like, he's wearing his uh, – Elliot, who's the first gargoyle that she meets, is constantly wearing his glamour because he is self-conscious of his true form. There's a lot of discussion about like how to be smaller, how to be in space with Grace without making her afraid, about like how to maneuver talons. And like there's like a ton of conversation and all of that conversation is bent towards us understanding that the gargoyles are both body conscious of themselves, like they're very aware of their size, they're very aware of how they're perceived, and that they care that Grace is comfortable, right? It's like it's like Beauty and the Beast, except instead of having to save her from the wolves, it's like he was always in the point of contrition. And there's also that classic romance thing, like this book really has it all, where they all have some kind of deep, dark trauma. Absolutely. And we get all of it. But I think Elliot's was particularly interesting to me. Elliot was an orphan gargoyle, and he lived in an orphanage, and they always had like really cheap, bad glamours, so he couldn't really, to hide their appearance, so he couldn't really go out into the world. Um, and he was trapped in this, like, super violent orphanage situation. And so he's very, like, glamour conscious and glamour proud, I guess. And his glamour is the most expensive, and it's the one that most easily fits in human form. Like, Alistair, our Alpha, and Broderick, our other gargoyle, their glamours only have one set of clothes, but Elliot's is so powerful that he has to buy a wardrobe for his glamour. Yeah. And he actually has sex in human form. Mm-hmm. 
Whereas Broderick and Alistair never do. And then there's Broderick, which I, I think I understood if I'm remembering correctly. I like don't really care for the traumatic backstories. It's not my tipple of choice. So I think I tend to like not retain it as mm-hmm. much because I'm not as invested mm-hmm. in it. Do you remember Broderick's? Broderick's father was a gargoyle and his mother was a human. And so he, his parents expected the a clan to take her in and like accept them. But apparently there's like a pure blood, mud blood divide in gargoyles. So like whatever. She dies tragically in a car accident. And then his father, of course, romantically and tragically and stupidly chooses to die when Broderick is 11 and his mother's in this car crash. And by choosing to die as a gargoyle, he just turns into stone and never turns out of it. And so then the clan... Because they were soul bound. Right, because they were soul bound. That's right. I forgot that. Um, And so then the clan basically gives him benign neglect until he's 18 and then they kick him out because they owed his father that much, but they didn't want him to be part of the clan because he was not a full-blooded gargoyle. And then what was Alistair's deal? Same type of thing. His father beat him all the time. It kind of reminded me of like a mormon polygamous cult thing where it was like child abuse and then he was like kicked out when he was old enough to like be a threat to the alpha exactly before he became old enough to like lay his dad out physically he was kicked out so yeah if you're into that kind of thing this book has it but also like they've all dealt with their traumas so their traumas are all out in the open there isn't like a lot of hurt comfort here uh because they've all dealt with it both together and separately. Like, Broderick, I would say, is probably the person who's dealt with it the best. But he also talks about, like, their healthy coping mechanisms and their unhealthy coping mechanisms. He talks about, like, the various love languages of Alistair and Elliot. Like, this book, like, the gargoyles themselves all have deep, dark traumas. They've all come together to build this, like, family we choose situation that they feel very protective of. And that they want to bring Grace into. Um, but they're it's like they've all been through years of therapy. And so they, like, they, they're like, here is how my baggage functions. I'm sorry. Like, I reacted badly to this trigger. I'll do better tomorrow. Like, you know, and they all like they all give perfect apologies where you acknowledge the thing that you did wrong. You apologize for the harm done and you take ownership of like how you're going to like give restitution or like restore. And I was like, this is a perfect apology. (laughs) (laughs) They're like very much like modern, the perfect sensitive modern man. Yes. And also very strong and gray. And I hate to like point this out because I I do think that this book does such a great job of making all of that relevant to who the characters are and how they function within their family. Whenever we have characters who transgress, they have to have something like traumatic to have had happen to them in a traditional family setting, right? In this case, like traditional for gargoyles, right? They had to resist it so that they can create this like progressive family unit that's you know all about adopting but also breeding and like sharing is caring and also just the fact that like everyone has to have a traumatic backstory all the time is getting like a little it's wearing a little thin 
I know it's not everyone all the time. No, but I think it is. And I think especially for all of the monster books, with the exception of the Lich novella, which we didn't really have a backstory for either of those characters, but like everyone else. But you can't imagine they were like cool and chill. Those characters actually made the most sense to me having a dramatic Sure, but I'm, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like also the trauma of the world being taken over by the Dark Lord Soren. Yeah, I just. Liches. <laughs> for sure. But I think like. The monster subgenre is a space of what I would call heightened drama. So, like, I was prepared for everyone to have a deep, dark tragedy, um, like an agoraphobic mother or, you know, your parents are brutally murdered in front of you and no one believes you. Like, okay, you know, we're dealing with monsters. That's pretty monstrous. And I think that's also part of this way of, like, taking the monstrous out of the monster and putting the monstrous into the world. Which, you know, yeah, it's a little, it's tiring. Like, you can be pretty fucked up from a family that loves you. (laughs) Yeah, a hundred percent. And that's the story I want to see. That's what I want to connect with. I mean, like, I, like, we never explore that. We never validate that culturally. We never see stories about people who were, like, Isabeau and I are two great examples of parents who gave their children an unreasonable amount of confidence for the world that we were then plopped into as we are. Absolutely. <laughs> My parents loved me so good. I expected the world to love me as well. And then they didn't. And then they didn't. Cold shower. And not even for like, <laughs> not even necessarily because of my shitty personality. Just like stuff that was, stuff that was completely out of my control. Yeah, they didn't like the cut of my jib. And I'm like, I can't change it. That's the way it's my jib works. Yeah. You can also just be fucked up by a family that loves you. And maybe they don't love you the right way. Like, I just read, like, a Dear Abby letter about this brother who's like, my sister's always been a loner. She doesn't want to come. Like, they're adults now. And he's like, she doesn't want to come to family gatherings. But we always loved her. She got everything that she needed. Like, you know, my parents paid for her college. I just don't want her to feel like we're a toxic family. And then the dear Abby was like, you might be, you might be for her. Like, maybe you just didn't know her love languages and, you know, like absolutely talk to her about it and talk to her about why she doesn't want to spend time with the family. Like, you should fucking ask those questions, like rather than writing to a stranger about like, I love my sister. I don't know what to do. I I think that's so interesting. And like the idea of saying out loud Not like, I want my sister to be a part of my life, or I want my sister to be happy, but like, I don't want my sister to think we're a toxic family. Mm -hmm, Because that's the fear. Sounds like you kind (laughs) of outed yourself right there as having a toxic (laughs) You know. You know. But this family is not toxic. This family is perfect. It's the opposite of toxic. They have pot roast, and they go to the opera together. Broderick, Alistair, and Elliot are the second generation of a previous thruple with a human woman um, who established this Bramblewick clan who then adopted those boy gargoyles because I don't know why they adopted and didn't. I, I guess Eloise, their mother figure, was not submissive and breedable. So if you were disappointed when you heard Isabeau say that there's not a lot of hurt comfort and you're like, well, I don't know if this is a book for me, an avid fan fiction reader. 
rest assured it is for you because this is uh, a book with nodding. It's a book with like an alpha, a beta, and an omega. And it literally is. So in the time since we started recording and I was like, I don't know what an omega is. I now know what an omega is. Are you ready, Isabel? I'm ready. Dominant alpha. Beta is neutral. So like Broderick. And submissive is the Omega, who is Elliot, who gets, who has never topped anyone until he meets the witch. Grace. Yeah. And then he tops her in the kitchen. And then he tops her. And then she only gets topped. She doesn't ever peg anybody. And I could have, I could have done with that. Like, I could have used that. I think that is the missing sex scene. That is the missing sex scene. Isabel's going back on what she said earlier. She says more. I mean, I don't say more, just like instead of. Instead of which one? I don't know, man. There's so many. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there are literally so many. Uh, What one would I have cut? I would have. That's the problem, though, because like like a good musical, I wouldn't cut any song necessarily from the book because they're they're all natural when they come up like the one that I was like oh I could have done without this um but I was like it was very sexy so like it stands by itself I mean do we want to get into this are you ready for sexiest part weirdest part I can do that absolutely so like hit it there's this isn't my sexiest part but like this is the one that I would potentially cut if I were an editor yeah but it also stands and you wanted alone a pegging scene instead and I wanted a pegging scene instead so Elliot has deceived everyone. He's our Omega. He feels the most self-conscious about his uh, gargoyle shape. He's the one that like sought Grace out because he's felt these massive relationship cracks between his partners. And so he's like, you know what we need? We need a lady and she'll be the glue that pulls us all together and it'll like she'll fill our holes and we'll fill her. It'll be great. But he doesn't tell anybody that he's doing this, which breaks the rules of his polyamorous exclusive relationship. Where it's like you can date outside the partnership, but you have to talk about it first. Like right. You have to get everybody on board. Right. So he's lying to everybody for a week. They all discover it. It's this whole to-do. And Elliot, our Omega, feels really bad. And Alistair, our Alpha, and he are going to work it out physically. And they have this incredibly hot, physical, working out sex scene that is very emotionally charged, that is very physical in every way. And it's like, it's it's a really hot sex scene. And like, it comes to completion. And then we have a sort of, uh, walk backward in time, 20 minutes, meanwhile, So, like, their door is actually ajar, which we didn't know when we were in the sex scene with them. (laughs) And Grace is, like, in this house, and she, like, is looking for something, hears a noise, is in the hall, and she sees them through the cracked door and gets really hot and bothered. And then she's like, oh, shit. Like, I shouldn't be here. I'm intruding on their privacy. And then Broderick appears out of nowhere in the hallway and... (laughs) is like, they needed to work that out. And now I can smell your arousal, which don't love. Always. (laughs) And your period. Don't love. And and then he's like, I'll help you because like, what are you going to do? You're going to go back to your room and touch yourself? Don't. Like, and he then 
performs oral sex on her in the hallway while they're listening to Elliot and Alistair finish. And like, it's a super hot sex scene. Like her, you know, leg is over his shoulder. They're in the hallway. She's wearing this gauzy Victorian nightgown for no reason. Because they're very comfortable. (laughs) Okay. Uh (laughs) Well, I know what you're getting for your birthday. (laughs) I'm sure I'll love it. You will. I had just had such a big meat of a sex scene that like <laughs> the Broderick Grace pun intended. <laughs> yeah pun intended the Broderick Grace hallway scene like did not hit me as hard and I was like I'm like titillated but I'm like I don't know I'm like if I had to cut anything and like ev- like audience it was very very hot I just like I don't know, <laughs> like that's that's a that that would have been a sex scene that I'm like I would have had pegging later, in in substitution for this one. But it's good. It's like all of I cannot find fault with any of these sex scenes. They're so good. The uh, sex scene between Broderick and Grace is the first sex scene with Grace. Elliot and Broderick have a scene early on, which was good because for some reason when Elliot was like when we get Elliot's perspective and he's talking about his mates, I thought like British people talking about their friends, <laughs> which would have put me put this in like a gangbang situation. <laughs> but instead, I think it's great that the book doesn't like center any one sexual relationship. I agree. I think it's great that, that our very first sex scene is Broderick and Elliot in the shower was both a delighting surprise, but also felt really good in the book. And like, as you say, didn't center anyone. Um, and because no one is centered, there's also ways to build sexual tension with each of them. Like yeah. she has sex with Broderick first, and then there's like all of this tension about when is she going to have sex with Alistair, the alpha and the biggest penis. <laughs> um, They're all three. Also, their penises get progressively larger based on their. The neutral one has the middlest <laughs> penis status. <laughs> Elliot has the smallest penis. There is like a full-on Goldilocks scenario. But I also feel like I would have liked it if Grace could have at some point been like really dominant in a sex scene. Mm -hmm. Deferring to someone is not the same thing as like submitting to someone. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily think that you have to be like the penetrator to be dominant in a sexual encounter, but I would have liked it more. I don't know because she's like the only gal in the mix. Yeah, I would have liked it more if she, if we could have had like one where she was calling the shots, you know? Yeah, telling the boys what to do. I understand, like Alistair, like you're reading this, you know, you want like the alpha to be the alpha, but it would have been nice for me, an outsider who's just come traipsing in here. Uh, to have my particular niche satisfied. <laughs> also, since we had three different flavors of boy band Gargoyle, yeah. like there would have been every opportunity for Grace to take control of either Elliot or Broderick in a sexual situation. That's true. It would have worked. Absolutely. And it would have felt good. Instead of like Grace, Grace gets progressively more limp-wristed as the book goes on. Yeah. Well, she becomes more and more submissive and readable gross i don't like that those two things are related (laughs) here's the thing okay Mm -hmm. 
I want to talk about my sexiest part. Okay. I want to hear about your sexiest part. My sexiest part pushed me to realize something that has been kind of sitting like a little pebble in my chest for a while, which is what's going on culturally with (laughs) the Omegaverse becoming surfaced and how it's becoming surfaced and what's being normalized about it and what that actually means. The first penetrative sex that Grace has is with Broderick, the middleest penis, and it's a lot for her. And it knots, and she takes the knot, which is even bigger. Um, and for those of you who don't know, knotting is a part of the Omegaverse, and it is in reference to, I know of it when canines have sex, there's like a knot after the ejaculation, and the dogs don't separate for a while. And that's exactly what happens here in the gargoyle universe but this is very clearly taking something that was created for like a werewolf situation and when i was like first thinking about it i was like well the werewolf thing has to have started with like twilight but some people speculate it has more to do with like the pawn far fan fiction that came out of star trek in the 60s which you can kind of see like there's like a a breeding like a ravenousness for sex yeah, the Ponfire comes, for those of you who don't know, the Ponfire comes upon all Vulcans every seven years. And if you don't physically attach yourself to your partner, like this glue comes into your hands, um, you can die or you kill other people. You can have Ponfire madness. Right, which is very much like, you know, an animal in heat thing. And it's interesting yes. because, right, Spock the Vulcan is so contained and then like so pond far right. i totally get why that would spring out like <laughs> it would be the ship that launched a thousand fanfics right right but a lot of people now say like the current or like what has become the current omegaverse starts with supernatural fan fiction. but i immediately thought like oh this must have, like my assumption would have been it would have started with twilight Because even though we don't see Jacob having sex or anyone having sex, like this idea of like imprinting is like a very animalistic thing. (laughs) The fact that like Jacob's sexuality can exist outside of societal norms and allows him to connect with a baby and people are like chill about it is (laughs) in the book. People are chill about it is like, kind of evocative of Omegaverse and like but like Omegaverse was considered is considered probably super transgressive like the Omegaverse which is like humans having sex like wolves also leads to impreg or male pregnancy fanfic it creates this like three-tiered system of the alpha the beta and the omega like that is pretty pervasive now and i would say one of the ways that it has surfaced is in this breeding idea becoming mainstream so like you're interested when you're having sex in the idea of impregnating or getting pregnant so it's almost like we've transgressed so that we can regress (laughs) sexually i think there's a lot there but i will say that breeding fanfic not even breeding fan fiction breeding romance 
pregnancy, especially in historicals, is almost always a given as part of the EHEA. Yeah. And there's an entire subgenre of secret baby, Mm -hmm. which is like pregnancy is a bad thing, but like the sex that did the impregnating was the good thing. And then it's like- Unless it's not their secret baby. (laughs) It's not their secret baby. Um, I think there is something here. I think you're right to talk about the way that it's like, we've now moved the transgression into a regression where it's like the ultimate move here about the couple dumb, however the couple works out in a triad or a quad or whatever. What's the point of sex? Creation. Yeah, (laughs) procreation. And it's like the thing that I think is most indicative of that is like at first, like it's male pregnancy, right? At first, it's not, it starts off with like gay sex and then it lead like between two men or two people who have penises and then it leads to like male pregnancy which sounds like super like oh my god you know but is it because it sounds like you just took something that was like sex for pleasure which is definitely solely for pleasure which is definitely like the more transgressive idea of sex right or the more progressive idea of sex and then it's like but guess what it's also to make babies and then to like really lean into the alpha the dominant person is impregnating the omega the submissive person i mean that's just like very much like a literalized way of understanding like gender and sex Yep. It's very biblical. <laughs> it's very biblical. And so I felt like there was something about the nodding thing that I knew was going to be in this book. Like I didn't read the like back of the book. I chose this based on the cover, which we can talk about. But I feel like I, there was something I was like at, circling. At first I was like, this is really cool that, you know, Grace is serious about starting a relationship and settling down because she wants children and she's not apologetic about that and I was like oh that's cool and then I was like oh wait (laughs) nodding is involved like what's this what's this and then it was like she's very submissive and breedable it doesn't say that but it says that it definitely says that like tell me that you're submissive and breedable without telling me and it's this scene here which is She's had sex with Broderick. Elliot knows that she's had sex with Broderick. He gets a little jealous and then he, you know, recovers from it. But she's been, you know, she's had this really physically demanding sex that she wasn't prepared for, really. And so she has a salve, but it's not doing enough to, like, heal her. So Elliot shows up at her place of business with a jar of salve. And we get this scene of tender ministrations. And he, like, lifts up her skirt in public and, like applies a salve to her using his tail which is yes if you have a tail in a super steamy romance you should be using it right yeah and i was like oh my god tender ministrations like i love this and then he says you're gonna need this salve especially once you want to try to start having children you probably won't even be able to leave the house without one of us filling you up trying to get our seed to take and then i was like god Damn it. God dang it. Trigger warning, like, I'm going to yuck yums because I don't understand them. And those particular yums yuck my yum. (laughs) So I was like, I don't really get, like, 
people who are like into the idea of like, I'm going to get you so pregnant. Like I didn't get it, you know, especially if you weren't actually trying to get pregnant. And I didn't get why I didn't get it and like why it made me feel uncomfortable. And I think it's because of this, like there's a dominance and submissive undercurrent to it that I just feel like people aren't addressing. And I'm like, why does it all have to be like this? Like, why can't we just like talk about sex for mutual shared equal pleasure? Like, why why is it that every time we get close, something like breederism surfaces? <sighs> and have we ever even actually gotten close? That's a good question. Like, we can't stop thinking about sex as like, a meeting of unequals and then we're like oh but he asked first so that makes it equals <laughs> like i don't know if that does and they say the thing like she has all the power the submissive party has all the power to say no and i'm like ah yeah i mean i do believe that and she does in this text and i was like even thinking about like i'm like well okay what about our less heteronormative because like this is like even while being poly it's like she's submissive there are three dudes it's it's still pretty heterosexual. one's submissive one's neutral yeah one's the alpha yeah and we, yeah. we're still working on some pretty like heteronormative like wavelengths here and so then i was like okay let me think about because like the idea of have we ever really gotten to equal and i was like well what about um the celestial mechanics right where we had the lesbians and i was like no because the power difference there was about money Right? Like massive wealth versus no wealth. There was still there was still an alpha and an omega. <laughs> yeah. And and age. And age and also um experience. And so like in all the ways that we like think about power in these relationships being surfaced or discussed, like breeding in this text especially feels super dominant but also super possessive like we don't have a lot of jealousy we don't have a lot of like there are no violent outbursts uh, of that nature with our gargoyles but we do have this which i think is all of a piece yeah and i do just want to say like Maybe it doesn't need to be said, but maybe it does need to be said that we have these conversations in like a theoretical, from a theoretical standpoint, rather than like a prescriptive standpoint. (laughs) Like we are in no way saying like you should not enjoy this, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're just talking about like where does this come from? Why is it this way? Why do we personally feel the way we personally feel, which we are entitled to just as much as anyone's entitled to personally feel I love it, you know. We're also entitled to feel like it makes me uncomfortable and I want to talk about it. And so that's – we're talking about it theoretically. Yeah. I mean the stuff with the knots and the breeding also like couldn't get away from then the visual image of childbirth because the way that the fleshy knot and how hard she has to stretch to take it. I'm like you guys are literally just talking about reverse birth. Reverse birth. I see. And I'm I like, see I'm the, not the, into it. <laughs> the problem, like, so, right, my sexiest part naturally leads to my weirdest part mm-hmm. in this case. And I think that's 
doesn't happen very often when I'm reading a romance. I'm usually keeping shit pretty discreet, but this was this was pretty messy. And like, I think the reverse birth thing, like the nodding, makes me think of the time I saw dogs not, and it was awful. Like it was not at all like something I would want to share with the animal kingdom. Like I wasn't like, this is cool and fun. Uh, those dogs seem to be really into this experience. <laughs> also the way that nodding is described. So like other than like the thing where it's like you have to squeeze the knot to get the ejaculate out of the gargoyle. So like you can do that with a physical orifice, or if the physical orifice can't take the knot, you can squeeze the knot as hard as you can and then they'll ejaculate. Okay. So that's, that's, them's the rules. But once it expands inside of your orifice, if that's what you've done, then the only thing that the knot is actually doing in this text, other than like being that, is like guaranteeing five to 20 minutes of cuddle time. Like, that's its function in this text, where it's like, Broderick's like, all right, now I'll just readjust you while my penis is still deeply inside of you and can't come out, and now I'll just cuddle, and like, I'll, like, massage your face and, like, you know, rub your arms, and I'm like, why did, why couldn't you do that without being <laughs> without the knot? Without the knot. Like, like, I love a good, like, post-coital cuddle. Like, I think that's a great part of any sex scene. Why do you have to be physically tied for that part to function? And then Broderick even says, like, this is his favorite part. And I'm like, if this is... <laughs> but also, like, the, the knot also serves the function of, like, Grace being able to have to, like, overcome a physical hurdle in order to feel like she has sexually succeeded like there is a sex scene where she's with Alistair and she does not take his knot and instead it's like relieved via the squeezing thing and that she feels like she has failed and he's like oh no it's not a failure like this will just take time but it's not like Hey, even if you never take my knot, I'm still sexually satisfied. It's like, you will. Yeah. You will take my knot, you know? (laughs) Like, that's like another thing. Like, the knot, I think, is also like this larger metaphor for a really like regressive sexual politic of you're going to be physically uncomfortable in order to physically satisfy me. And it'll be a nice physical discomfort. Like, you'll also enjoy it, but like, Listen, to say all of this, right, like, I enjoyed the sex scenes. I thought they were very steamy. I thought they were very hot. I thought they were interesting. I thought they were a breath of fresh air. Having said that, it's literalizing a lot of – it's saying the unsaid a lot of this nodding stuff. Yeah. And it's packaged as taboo, but, like, it turns out that, like, it's just regular old – dominance and submission yeah it's regular old sex but then there's like (laughs) regular old sex but it's it's just sex but then it like kind of sex scene with nodding i don't know if it gets to be transgressive and titillating unless you're assuming something about like oh this is like animals having sex which is a weird thing to think about or like this is like 
interesting because it's two men, right? It's gay sex. I think thinking of gay sex as taboo is something we should move past. And I think um, thinking of trying to recreate the animal kingdom in general as like some kind of guide for how to live as humans like we're not canines. Not something we should not not something we should move toward. And one thing we actually talk about a lot on this episode is like we have no way of understanding or truly relating to animals because their brains are so different from ours. Like we even have like no way of knowing like how intel emotionally intelligent or what capacity for language because we're so limited in our own like narrow scope of things right like we can only measure an animal's ability to recreate our own emotions to back to us in a legible way that's pretty Mm -hmm. narrow-minded but also Mm -hmm. like i don't want to think about dogs having sex while i'm having sex Mm -mm. or lions or whatever other critters not (laughs) and you know how much i love whales and you don't even want to think about it i don't My other weirdest part, they keep referring to her her vagina as small. That gets to my weirdest part. Take it away. (laughs) They call her vagina, pussy, and cunt little because they're so big. But it's also like the thing where she's a curvaceous librarian. (laughs) And... She's like, oh, no, don't pick me up. I'm so heavy. And they're like, we're gargoyles. You're so light. And it's like she is made small and beautiful and petite and desirable by their massive size. And it's like, yeah, that's not progressive. She's not even a fat heroine. You've never called her that. She doesn't call herself that. There are all these like allusions to the fact that like her mother like suggests diets and stuff and that she feels uncomfortable in restaurants sometimes when she orders a steak and her suitor is like you sure you didn't want a salad and so like there are all these illusions I'm meant to understand her as a curvier or heavier heroine but then the fact that she is made beautiful by being made small is like she was beautiful before do, do we really need to keep commenting on her size in this way? Because, like, that's not fat representation. That's not, like, none of the thing. Like, we know that the way that she was raised about her body was bad. This book is, like, unequivocal about that. But then, like, does all the stuff where it's like, we'll pick you up. Or we'll do you the fireman's carry and the bridal carry. And, like, isn't that your fantasy of, like, being so little? The thing that your mother always wanted for you. And now you have it because we're, like, these massive dudes. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it that way. I actually commented. I was like, I really like the way this book, like, I knew she was – Fat, even though the book doesn't say fat, it says curvy and, you know, it doesn't even, you know, it talks about like thick thighs and and things like that. But I was like, I kind of like the way this book is handling a fat heroine because it's no different from a thin heroine. Mm -hmm. But that is true. Like, I don't know. It's not like she, we get perspective on like other men, like before the gargoyles not being able to hoist her or something. But I, I. I understand where you're coming from. Like, there's this circling of she's not fat anymore because she's with monsters that kind of sucks. I, and there is that part where 
we meet the like evil guy Theo in person and he says that her body is embarrassing. Yeah. Which is pretty intense. And yeah. a, a pretty intense thing to say. You know, I think it's hard to be fat without carrying some trauma around being fat, like mm-hmm. being hyper aware of how you're perceived. Mm-hmm. But I I did enjoy early in the book the way her fatness was just kind of another part of her because I think I was I was comparing it to spoiler alert Mm. yeah I also was comparing it to spoiler alert and I think it was better in the beginning of the book because the thing that it then was contrasted by was her confidence and that all of the gargoyles like falling in love with her but by the middle and the end this intense physicality and this intense comment on the physicality of her being made smaller by their massiveness like there's a turn there when they all start jumping into bed together and then she's like uncomfortable or like self-conscious and like she wants to hide her body and they're always like no your body is so beautiful and that's great if they'd stopped there and then they're like diminutive small pussy let me carry you and I'm like (laughs) Okay. <laughs> but like the yeah, I had that didn't strike me. And I I did like that like her whole personality wasn't like I'm a fat woman. For sure. I also love that and I love that about her friend, but again, I think like it began it like I didn't hear it at first and then it began to bother me just like this other like my other weirdest part is that she refers to restaurants as food places yes! like four times in the book. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Just say restaurant, you fucking the weirdo. The dialogue in the beginning of the book is kind of choppy. It's a little dicey. Um, at one point I was like, this gargoyle. He took me to new food yes! places. She says, the food is phenomenal. And this place gets mentally upgraded to one of my favorite food places. That's a little weird. And like, why wouldn't you just say restaurant? There's also like something kind of like milady about Elliot in the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. He says, "You are perfection." Elliot's smile takes on a salacious edge. I'll lift and arrange you for all kinds of things if you'd allow me. I'm eager to provide you a demonstration if needed. His brows move with suggestion, and my mouth dries at the casual innuendo. And I was like, that's not really casual or an innuendo. It's literal. It's neither of those things. Yeah, that's pretty literal. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I highlighted a bunch of stuff at the beginning, but I also stopped highlighting through the end. This was definitely a book that, like, found its sea legs narratively. Yeah. I wonder what order it was written in. That's a good question. I would say, like, beginning to end in this book got its sea legs, but another part of me is, like, maybe the book felt like it needed, like, a courtship in the beginning. Maybe, like, mm-hmm. like I know that, like, Joanna Lindsay wrote the sex scenes first and then built the book around it, and we are all the richer for it about 50% of the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Feels generous, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious how this book, the order that this book was written in. I'm just curious. Me too. It doesn't change anything about the fact. You, uh, is it a well-mance or a no-mance? What's your verdict on Deceived by the Gargoyles? I was just about to ask you. But I'm the omega in this relationship, so I have to be the one to ask you questions and then stare at you with big batting eyelashes waiting for you to ask me a question. Morgan, we already decided this at the beginning <laughs> of the episode. We're co-megas. <laughs> co-megas. 
Um, but since you asked, even though I was literally about to, <laughs> it's a romance for me. I think everyone should read it. I think the sex scenes here are banging and they come out yeah. of nowhere like a Broadway musical. So if you enjoy that, but also with steam, might I recommend this? I think it pulled a lot of interesting threads in terms of the gargoyles themselves. So if you were a fan of that television show in the 90s, you will probably like this book. Or if you enjoyed The Hunchback of Notre Dame and like to imagine those three gargoyles with their three unique personalities, I feel like the old one was the beta or the neutral and the tall one was the alpha and the short chunky one was the omega. Absolutely. That makes the most sense. So I think any gargoyle media you've consumed, that it will be scratched by this particular text. It brings up a lot of weird shit. And I'm glad that we had this discussion. <laughs> what a perfect pinnacle for this project. Is it a romance for you as well? Yes. Yes. I think this may be even a bigger woe than Love Laugh Lich, even though I feel like that's a super approachable text. Um, this one is also approachable, and I think it has, like, a lot more of the stuff that, like, romance fans would enjoy. But I would also say, even if you're looking for, like, a first-time romance and you're the kind of person who likes to cannonball into the cold pool, this is a feast. Also, I want to talk about the cover, which is gorgeous. We have famously... I have famously had an issue with covers as of late. This feels painterly, and it's beautiful. The contrast, the colors, the pose. It's clearly like a very sexy book. Female figure on the front is full and voluptuous. I love the gargoyle having this like really dark blue pallor as like a shadow wrapped around her. I love the flower. Like I love the cover and I found, I believe Lillian Lark did the cover as well. Talent. I know. Sometimes when God gives, he gives with both hands. True story. It is a really great cover. So please do check it out. Uh, it's a full-throated woe. As Morgan just said, it is an excellent pinnacle to end our monster march upon and plant our flag in this taboo not taboo subgenre well i also think like there's something more than legitimate about being turned on by a dominant submissive traditional dare i say regressive sexual model and i think there's something to be said for books or tropes that allow you to explore that through several veils of transgression. And, you know, we should all be able to enjoy what we enjoy, especially in book form, which I still think is like one of the safest ways to enjoy um, sex that you wouldn't otherwise enjoy. Books remain a very safe way to explore our fantasies, maybe the safest way to explore our fantasies. And so I think there's really something to be said for uh, nodding fiction, something positive to be said for it. I feel like we kind of reamed it. <laughs> we did not get our knots stuck into nodding. Yeah, we were trying to untangle the knot. I'm going to leave that there. I'm not going to try to elucidate that metaphor. <laughs> I think that's good. I think we really... I think we should leave it. it. I think we should leave that. All right. Um, anyways, loosen your knots. But never your principles. Mwah. 
Woli guacamole, everyone! Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.